morning again. So, we are continuing today in our More Parables series. And I'm uh, just going to give a warning right off the bat. Um, I decided to really challenge myself this week. Uh, because we're going to be doing what's often considered by interpreters the hardest parable, uh, the most challenging one to understand. This is what's called the parable of the shrewd manager. Now, uh, if you have been here at all as we've been working through the parables back in the fall and, and now in the winter, uh, you've probably heard me say this multiple times. About 35% of Jesus' recorded teachings are parables. And that naturally leads to a question, which is, why would Jesus teach that way? Why would he not just say it, right? Why would he teach in a way that requires interpretation and reflection? And Jesus' disciples did ask him that once. And the answer that he gave, I have summarized as, I teach through parables so that those who are interested in the truth will seek it more, and those who are not will just move on. So the parables act kind of like a filter to, to draw closer those who are interested and to just kind of keep those who only want to use Jesus away. If all you want from Jesus is to use him to get something, you're not going to have patience for the parables. But if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the parables are going to make you curious. Okay. I also think that there's another reason that Jesus spoke in parables, and I haven't talked about this yet. Because parables stick. Stories stick in our minds. This is kind of humbling for me to admit this, but, you know, I think I've, I've preached about 260 sermons at St. Paul's since I got here. And I am confident that most of what I've said has been forgotten. And I'm confident of that because I don't remember most of it. And now, I'm not saying that those sermons didn't matter. Okay? Because everything that we hear and say, all of it shapes us right, into the kind of people that we're going to be. But we don't remember specifics most of the time. You know, the norm is for somebody to say, oh, when they're preaching a sermon, I've got to come up with three take-home bullet points, right? But if you hear three take-home bullet points every week, you're not, you're not going to remember those, right? You're, you'll be lucky to remember them two weeks later, right? Because we don't tend to remember specifics. The things that stay in our mind are stories, Images, right? So Jesus might have been clearer if he just gave us like three bullet points. Here's the takeaway message. But I doubt we would remember them as well. The parables stick. They stay in your mind, right? You can forget lots of other things, but these little stories remain in your brain. So Jesus knew what he was doing. And I think that we should try to keep all that in mind as we look at this very challenging parable, right? We want to we not be the kind of people that aren't curious, right? We don't want to just move on. We want to seek the meaning 
And we also want to trust that Jesus knew what he was doing, even though he spoke in a confusing way. So, if you uh, want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Luke 16, verse 1. Lord Jesus, please give us understanding, grant us insight, help us to focus our attention on you. We invite you to work in our hearts. Amen. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I heard about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, oh, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. All right, are you confused? If you're confused, you're in good company. This parable tends to confuse everyone. All right, so let's review this. Parable of the shrewd manager, we've got two primary characters, right? We've got a rich man, and we have his employee, a manager. And just for convenience sake, let's call the rich man Mr. Rich, and we'll call the manager Manager Bill. So uh, Mr. Rich is very wealthy. He has a lot of land with a lot of farms, and uh, he, uh, he's got vineyards, so he's got a lot of stuff that people want. He's a major supplier, and uh, he's, uh, he's not the one who bakes the bread, but he's the one who provides all the, the baking materials, right? Major supplier. And uh, manager Bill is responsible for making sure that the rich man, Mr. Rich, Rich's products get to the bakers and, you know, the, the, the shopkeepers and that sort of thing. That is what he's paid to do. But Mr. Rich hears that manager Bill hasn't been doing his job very well, right? He's been wasting his possessions. Now, how he's been doing that exactly, we're not told. Uh, maybe he's been providing really poor customer service to uh, the bakers and shopkeepers. Maybe he's been using the master's money on terrible investments. Uh, Maybe he uh, hasn't been demanding payment uh, from the people who are buying his supplies. Maybe he's just bad at math. We we don't know what his problem is. Um, But all that Mr. Rich knows is that his wealth is not increasing under Bill's management. So uh, Mr. Rich calls 
manager Bill in and he says, explain yourself, right? I've heard you're wasting my wealth. And as you can see, Bill knows that he has no excuse, right? Um, and he realizes, well, I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. I've got no marketable skills. Uh, he says that he's not physically fit to do uh, labor, right? We don't know why that is. Maybe he's handicapped. Maybe he's older. Uh, but he can't do those kinds of jobs. And um, he doesn't want to beg, which is understandable. It's, it offends his pride. And let's be honest, you're probably not going to make a lot of money begging, right? So what is he going to do? In a little while, he's going to hit rock bottom, and he's not even going to have a place to live. So he comes up with a scheme. He goes to the shopkeepers. Uh, the bakers that owe money to his master, and he reduces their debt, right? He says, oh, how much do you owe? And they say, well, I owe, you know, for 900 gallons of olive oil. He says, let's make it half of that. Let's just cut your debt down to 450. Now, why does Bill do this? Well, he tells us why, right? So that people will welcome me into their houses. So his thinking is, if I do a favor for them, they're going to feel like they need to do a favor for me. And I think we can all understand that, right? If you do something really nice for somebody, then you think, well, they're probably going to be nice back to me. And especially in that culture, uh, favors were a big deal. If you did a favor, it, it was normal for the other person to then feel indebted to you uh, to return the favor. Now, I think the most confusing part of the parable is Mr. Rich's response. Right? You would think that Mr. Rich would be angry. right? And he would say, you had no right to reduce the debt. You've already lost me a bunch of money. Now you've lost me even more money. And so you know, I'm going to throw you in jail. I'm not just going to fire you. I'm going to put you in prison. That, that seems like the response that we would expect. But we're told that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Why would he do that? Well, here's the most likely reason why. Because not only has Bill gained friends because of doing this, as, the ma as Mr. Rich's representative, Mr. Rich has gained friends too. See, word has started to spread that Mr. Rich is a really generous benefactor. And so everybody loves him now. That's most likely what's going on. And so Mr. Rich knows, well, if I punish Bill, then all this goodwill that I've gained now is going to be lost. And let's be honest, I might not even get the money that I want because clearly these people are having trouble paying anyway. So he's in a position where if he punishes Bill, he actually ends up hurting himself. And I would go so far as to say that I think that he is actually genuinely happy about the way that things have turned out. Because he probably realizes that this is gaining so much goodwill for him um, that you know, he's going to end up making more money in the long run. Because a good reputation means more people are going to want to do business with you, more people are going to want to honor you, right? So Mr. Rich doesn't 
throw Bill in prison. He says, Bill, you rascal. That was shrewd. That was smart. So what is the point of the story? Look at verse 8 again. Jesus finishes the parable, and then he says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Some translations say the children of the light. Now that tells us something about Bill, right? Because Bill is being called people of this world. He's a worldly person. We're not supposed to look at Bill as some beacon of righteousness, some great example for us of how we're supposed to live, that we're, we're supposed to be dishonest and you know, use our manager's wealth and, or our employer's wealth and, and, and lie and that sort of thing. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. Um, Bill is, is a worldly person, and he is an example for us, not because he is righteous, but because he was smart. And why was he smart? Because of the way he used wealth. You can write that down. He was smart because of the way that he used wealth. When you think about it, what Bill did was very non-intuitive. Right? If your employer said to you, you have completely mismanaged my money, you have one day to make things right, or I'm firing you, what would be the natural response to that situation? The natural response would be to go out and find everybody who owes your employer money and say, pay up now or there will be consequences. Right? That is the normal reaction. Like in the parable that we looked at two weeks ago, the guy that goes to the person who owes him money and says, pay what you owe me. Right? Normally, if you're in a job and you're getting pressure from above, what do you do? You then take that out on the people below you, right? If the person above you gets more demanding, you get more demanding with the people below you. That is the normal response. But this guy does something completely non-intuitive. He does the opposite, right? Instead of going and saying, pay up, he says, you know what? You owe half as much as you used to. It's not the kind of reaction we would expect. And why does he do that? Why does he reduce the, the debt? Because his goal isn't to get money. His goal is to gain friends. His goal is not to get money. His, his goal is to gain friends. And Jesus is saying, that is smart. That is shrewd. It's smart to value people more than money. It's smart to value being generous more than increasing your net worth. It's smart to care care about people more than dollars, and it's smart to find your security in relationships rather than in your bank account. And that's why he says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, because it is going to be gone one day, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. People go to heaven. Money doesn't. Your money will never welcome you into heaven, but your friends might. So we have to make sure our priorities are straight. We should not see money as the goal. We should see money as a tool. It's a tool. It's a tool to bless people. But see, the temptation, the sinful temptation is always to get it backwards to reverse it, right? 
where money becomes our goal and people are a tool to getting it. And what Jesus is saying through this parable is that even worldly, dishonest people sometimes realize that this is true. Sometimes they realize that money should not be the goal. And this parable is an example of that. But he says, the, the people or the children of the light are not as shrewd. The worldly people are more shrewd than the children of the light, the people of the light. Why is that? Okay, who is he talking about? The people of the light. Most, most translations say the children of the light. Well, I am confident that who Jesus has in mind here are the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of his time. Now, why do, I, why do I say that? Why call them the children of the light, the people of the light? Because they were thought to be the people who had received illumination from God, the revelation from God, right? These were people who were not supposed to be in the dark about God, like those Gentiles, right? They were supposed to be the bearers of God's revelation. They knew the scriptures. They taught the scriptures. They were supposed to live by the scriptures. But they weren't shrewd about money. Money for them wasn't a tool. It had become the goal. And one of the reasons we know that is because right after this parable, Jesus says, Luke 16, 14, or sorry, Jesus doesn't say, but the Gospel of Luke says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. That's how they react to this parable. If you've been around at all as we've been working our way through the parables, you know that this would not be the first time that Jesus has told a parable in order to warn or critique the Pharisees, the religious uh, ruling class of his day. Um, at least five of the parables that we've looked at so far are that, warnings or corrections to the Pharisees. And one of them is immediately right before this parable. It's the parable of the lost son. Uh, you guys might remember that one. That one was told to critique the Pharisees for not being merciful, um, for not wanting to welcome prodigals home. And then Jesus tells this parable. And then shortly after this parable, he tells another parable that we've looked at together, uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And that one is a, a critique of the fact that the Pharisees love money and that that love of money will eventually lead to terrible consequences. Right? So it would make sense that if Jesus tells a parable right before this that's a critique of the Pharisees and right after this that's a critique of the Pharisees, that the one in the middle would also be aimed at the Pharisees. Right? And the reason Jesus tells so many parables this way right, is because he's saying to the religious ruling class at the time, you guys have lost the plot. You have drifted so far from what God intended. You were not eager to welcome prodigals home. You were not eager to be merciful and generous. You're not eager to help those who are less fortunate. And Jesus is saying, even worldly dishonest people sometimes recognize that people are more valuable than money. So how is it that the children of the light aren't recognizing that, aren't acting like that? 
how sad is it that they're looking for security in piles of money rather than in meaningful relationships? Now, the Pharisees may have been Jesus' target here, but we have to recognize that we are not that different from the Pharisees. And um, I'm not saying that because of anything particular about us. I'm saying that because the Pharisees were human beings, right? And we are too. You guys might remember a little while ago, we looked at the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And that also was a, a critique of the Pharisees. It was a critique of their lack of humility. And the danger for us is that we can see all of these parables, these critiques of the Pharisees, and start to get a pride that says, oh, those terrible Pharisees, glad I'm not like them, right? But then we've missed the point, right? We want to have the kind of humility that Jesus is talking about, which means we need to recognize, I am susceptible to the same sorts of things, the same sins that the Pharisees were. And I, I don't want to be so proud as to not realize that, right? The Pharisees are not a different species. So, this parable forces us to ask the question, am I more concerned about relationships or about the size of my bank account? Do I look for security in money or in cultivating healthy relationships? And I think most of us would say, oh, of course I don't love money. Of course I don't look for security in money. But we have to really get honest with ourselves. Sometimes we don't even realize how much we're trusting in money, trying to find our security there. And we have to realize, okay, we may love money, but money will never love us back. Right? Money will never give us a hug. Money will never appreciate us. Money won't be there to hold our hand when we're dying in a hospital bed. Of course, we all need money. Okay? It's not wrong to want some money. It's not wrong to want a job. We need these things. We need to make a living. But it is foolish. It's not shrewd. It's not smart to make money our goal. That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. You know, if you're a parent and you're offered a promotion at work and it comes with a big raise, your, your initial impulse may just be to say, well, of course I should take that, right? It's more money. But if money is a tool, it's not the goal, we always need to ask ourselves, okay, will this help me to achieve what really matters, right? So you have to ask yourself, okay, if I take this promotion, will it mean a big increase in the amount of hours that I'm working? And if so, am I not going to be able to be present with my kids? Will my relationship with my kids suffer if I take this promotion? Now, you know, if you're in that situation, I don't know what the answer is. And maybe if you can't even put food on the table, you're going to need to take that promotion, right? I realize these situations are complicated. But as followers of Christ, we shouldn't just say, oh, more money equals closer to my goal, right? We need to ask ourselves, 
what do I really value, what's important, and are my priorities right? Money should be a tool, it should not be the goal. There's something else that I hear Jesus saying here, and I, I tried to think for a while about what's a simple, snappy way to put it. And, and what I came up with is giving grace builds a shelter. Giving grace builds a shelter. The master shows grace to the debtors, right? Or excuse me, the uh, manager bill shows grace to the debtors. They think that the rich man is showing grace to them, but it's really just because manager bill is shrewd. Um, but they're shown grace, right? And then because they're shown grace, they want to return the favor, right? They have goodwill uh, for Bill. And, and so the giving of grace has helped to build a shelter for Bill. And Jesus is saying that is true. Giving grace builds a shelter. And I think a great illustration of this, this idea, is the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I'm going to give away the ending, but it's like 70 years old, so. <laughs> How many of you have seen It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, most of you. It's, you know, a Christmas classic, right? And I actually talked about this movie two Christmases ago in a sermon, but uh, you probably know the story, right? George Bailey, he wanted to leave his hometown, but he, for a whole bunch of reasons, he never got to leave it, which meant that he ended up taking over the family business, the uh, building and loan company, the, the bank and the mortgage lending company. And as he's stuck in his hometown over the years, he ends up building relationships with the people in the town, because everybody's got to go to the bank. And he ends up showing grace to a lot of people because he does what he can to enable them to have affordable quality housing. He shows a lot of grace over the years. And then, of course, the movie is all about the moment of crisis he has when, because of an honest mistake, a bunch of the money in the bank has gone missing. And George knows this is going to mean the end of the bank, and it's probably going to mean prison time for me. And so he's suicidal. But the end of the movie is the whole town finds out that George is in this crisis, and they take up a collection, and they all show up at his house on Christmas Eve, and they dump out all the money on the dining room table and break into Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Right? Giving grace built a shelter. Right? He had given favors for years to the people of this town, and then when he was in his moment of need, the grace came back to him through the town. And, uh, and then George, he, he finds a note from his guardian angel, Clarence, that says, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Which is not a verse in the Bible, uh, but it does seem to fit with what Jesus is saying through this parable, right? We equate success often with, with money, right? But the point of the movie and the point of what Clarence says there is that real success is found in healthy relationships, right? 
And that's what Jesus is saying here. Value relationships more than money. Value grace and generosity more than money. Don't find your security in money. Find your security in showing grace and generosity to the people around you because giving grace builds a shelter. Now, I think that principle, giving grace builds a shelter, it is generally true in life. But there are exceptions, right? Sometimes you show grace and generosity and you get taken advantage of. This often happens in the world, right? But Jesus isn't just saying something about this life, right? He's saying something about eternity. He says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Eternal dwellings. What lasts into eternity is not the money we saved, but the love that we gave. It might sound a little cheesy because it rhymes, but hopefully it's more memorable that way. <laughs> what lasts into eternity is not the money we saved, but the love that we gave. Now, I know, if you have been a Christian for a while, this raises some questions, right? Questions like, hey, I thought we were saved by faith in Jesus, not by our good works. This makes it sound like we're saved by our works, right? By what we do with our money. It is true that we are saved by faith in Jesus. Our eternal salvation is ultimately a gift from God won for us by Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. Yes. And we received that, we received that gift by trusting in Jesus. That's what faith is, trust. But trusting in Jesus means trusting in Jesus, not trusting in money. And it also means trusting in what Jesus said. And a big theme of Jesus' teaching over and over again is don't trust in money, right? Trust me. When we trust in money, we hoard it. We're not generous with it. We cling to it. It becomes the goal rather than a tool, and people become a tool for us, and money becomes the goal, right? But when we trust in Jesus, we stop trusting in money. And that frees us to be generous and to show grace. Let's value generosity more than money. Let's value relationships more than money. And as we do, let's trust that grace is building a shelter. Right? Both now and forever. Lord, we thank you for this confusing parable. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we continue to reflect on it, that you would give us more insight into it. And Lord, we do pray that, unlike the Pharisees, we would really be free from the idol of, of money and wealth, Lord. Help us to have our priorities straight. Help us to be people of love and generosity. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for the incredible mercy and grace that you have shown to us. And we pray that we would always uh, reflect that mercy and grace to the world around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.